Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. Hello and welcome to another fabulous edition of Tasting Anarchy. I'm Mason Joseph, joined as always by... Jacob Lindsay. And special guest... Jackson Blood. Yeah. What is this, returning returning for three or four episodes, do you think, Jackson? I think three or four. I yeah. think it's... I think this yeah. is the third. Okay. Yeah, Pretty good. Not not too bad. Yeah. That Considering this is, I think, episode 101, then that's almost 3% of the entire show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, you know, Jackson, I think you've got the most interesting wine tonight. Not not to besmirch yours, Mason. So why don't you go ahead and and let us know what you're sipping on? I just took out. It's a pretty decent bottle, so um, I used the uh, what's in the call it on it. But um, it's a Trude Vineyard um, MT, so it's a Tanat, Tempranillo, and Malbec blend, and it's made in the Applegate Valley of Southern Oregon, so probably about three hours south of Portland. That's um, wait, wait, Troon Vineyard. That's um, that's uh, I, I interviewed that guy who's the, yeah, 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 exactly. That's why. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this is basically a Southwest French style Mataron blend, uh, with Tanat Malbec Tempranillo, which is just not a wine you see much in the U.S., let alone the world. It's pretty much exclusive to a small part of France. It used to be more common throughout France, but. Now it's sort of confined to the southwest there. Um, and the Tanat is just a really interesting, different grape that has this sort of it, even more tannic than Cabernet Sauvignon-like quality to it, but it, just a lot of lovely dark fruit flavors. And this wine can probably age another 15, 20 years. And you said the whatchamacallit you used on it, that's the Coravin? Yeah, the Coravin, sorry. Yeah, that's those. Those are really neat. I've been thinking about getting one of those. Other than pretty much everything I drink, I finish in like a day or two. But may, maybe for something nicer. Like if you want to compare a few wines without opening them all up, it's quite nice because yeah, that makes sense. Justify you know trying a hundred dollar bottle of wine every night, you know. That that makes total sense. I we we did this. Uh, actually, it was recently, and there I get Wine Spectator magazine, and I was reading through it, and they had. Uh, one of the I, the last issue that I read was about California Cabernet Sauvignon. They were like, okay, this is what we think is going on with California Cabernet Sauvignon coming up. And one of the ones, one of the wines they had in there was the 2016 um, from Oakville, uh, the Groth, which is is pretty popular. I mean, it's it's a it's a fairly common one, but it's about it's you know between seventy and a hundred dollars a bottle depending on the year. I had a 2015, and it was really good. It was one of the few ones that my wife liked. And uh, we ended up finishing the bottle that night. So between the two of us, that's one thing. But I had several hundred plus dollar bottles of Cab Sauv and opening one up, finishing it that night is not as much fun as using the Coravin and just kind of getting a glass from each one and seeing how's this one, how's this one, how's this one, you know, because you forget, you forget over time, like what each one was like. Yeah, exactly. And it it just helps in general if you want to compare you know quite different wines without opening up a few bottles because if you're trying to learn about wine i think the most important thing to do is compare them side by side yeah i think that that more than anything else is what matters for Mm -hmm. just getting an ability to taste the differences between wines and i think it applies to just about everything applies to beer applies to whiskey applies to cheese or anything you got to compare side by side otherwise you're 
tasting something in a vacuum and you're just going to kind of put whatever thoughts you had at that exact moment and of the exact place onto that dish, onto that wine. So you have to compare it to something else to really understand what it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Now, Jackson, did you say what year that one was? Oh, yeah, this is a 2015. And then what's the alcohol by volume on it? Uh, 14.2, so not super high for a Rhone style. Mm, Oh, no, that's not that super high, especially it's also not that high for kind of like American-style wines these days. Yeah, but yeah, Oregon in general is going well below 14 on average now, at least with kind of the newer people. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think that, you know how they're allowed to go 1% above or below? Do you think that anybody is trying in Oregon to go lower for prestige reasons? Because it seems to me like in Texas, when I go out and meet a lot of the producers, they tend to brag about the amount of sugar that's in their grapes so that they're they're making these very high alcohol wines. They're like, oh man, you won't believe how much sugar I got out of these grapes this year. And which is very different than like what they would do like in France for example where high alcohol is considered lower quality yeah Oregon is much is coming much closer to the French position in that like if I talk to a producer in Oregon and I, and I mention oh wow the alcohol is at 14.5 by volume they'll get very defensive very quickly oh okay yeah that makes sense so that sort of mentality so I, I'm sure a few people are adjusting and I think by and large Oregon producers tend to be actually quite honest about that stuff yeah um, because other people will call them out for it. Uh, but in general, the preference in Oregon is to go much lower. So now you're starting to finally see wines that, especially whites that are around 12.5. Some of the Rieslings are clocking out at 9.5, 11%. So they're actually going quite low and more European style, which has been the general trend. Mm-hmm. But it actually it hasn't helped them that much get into the mass of the U.S. market. It's helped yeah. them get into more sophisticated, smaller markets, which is you know right. a good thing too. Well, and just it makes sense too because Oregon does tend. It does seem like I mean, compared to like Texas, where although Texas has a similar climate to parts of southern Spain and places like that, but with Oregon, it is so much closer to northern Spain, southern France, like the the cooler parts of the you know, or I wouldn't say cooler, but warmer parts of wine producing France. And and some parts cooler, like where they're you know they're producing very good Pinot Noir there, which tends to do better at slightly cooler climates. But uh, that so it makes more sense that they would be trying to go kind of in that direction. Whereas like places that are very warm climate, like down here, or uh, even like southern parts of California, where they're producing, they they just don't care that much about trying to hide the alcohol or anything. And so maybe they're they have a different selling point. Yeah, exactly. And that was sort of the trendy style in the 90s, like like I think mm-hmm. we've discussed before, mm-hmm. was to go bigger and bolder again and again for, further and further. But actually, in California as well, particularly the cooler coastal people, they are much more emphasizing kind of freshness, quality of flavor, and lower ABV levels than sort of the big, powerful wines. Yeah. Even though they often can achieve that if they try for it. Uh, like a lot of people, even in Santa Barbara, are get, making 125 ABV Chardonnays, even. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, Mason, yes, you're going with a wine today that is a popular grape varietal in parts of Rhone as well. What are you yes, sipping on? Uh, so I finished the uh, Barbersville Vineyards uh, 2017 Vignette Reserve, 
so it's 13% ABV. Got it at Kroger for like 20 bucks. So Barbersville is in Virginia. It's in the Piedmont area. So it's like central Virginia, kind of that area. Um, it was like super pale, like hay almost, but like not cloudy, but like kind of that like diffused yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really get a lot out of the smell, but then again, I don't really you know, always smell very well. Uh, what's really interesting about this one is it's 100% steel, uh, steel barrel done. So there's no oak in it at all. So you don't get any butteriness to it. Um, so it was really bright. I think it's a little more acidic than like most people probably would, but it like was a little bit spicy on the back end, very long linger on the palate. Um, pretty bright with citrus and pear notes. So definitely a really good vignette. All right, nice, nice. That's uh, yeah, or a good, good American style one, I guess. <laughs> Barbersville as well, like um, the wine for normal people. Lady is always talking about it. I've noticed. Yeah, um, yeah, she likes that know. a lot. Yeah, uh, I'm actually going out to see her in about ten days. No, thirteen, oh, cool. thirteen days. So, yeah, oh, cool. yeah, we'll be. I'll be in D.C. going to her underground wine event to check out wine from places that are not California, but in the United States still. So, <laughs> uh, well, you know, mine is actually kind of uh, related to yours as well, although it is a Texas wine. So, you know, Mason, you and I both did indigenous wines to our areas. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh, say it again? Yeah, likewise, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, Berkeley Hill 2017 Tempranillo. It's 14.6% alcohol by volume. I honestly don't remember how much I paid for this. I got it at a local grocery store in Lubbock when I was out there mm-hmm. and um, I picked up a whole bunch of, of wines that were kind of local to that area. This is the last of that. And there was several that I chose not to review because I didn't really like them very much. But um, <laughs> this one, again, I think it was about $25 a bottle. I went and looked on their website. They don't actually have the Tempranillo there, uh, but they had some of the other ones that I did think. So I actually got three different wines from Berkeley Hill, which used to be part of Trilogy. I wasn't going to review any of them because um, they used to be part of Trilogy. Trilogy split up. I don't really know what the situation is. There may there may be bad blood. There may not be, but I'm friends with Rowdy. And so I asked him, I said, hey, do you mind if I review this? He said, no, that's fine. So um, I'm reviewing it. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I was I wasn't sure what their relationship was. I don't know what the wine community is like. I don't know if people, you know, carry grudges or not. They they seem pretty pretty cordial to me, but Jackson, you might be able to speak to this better. Well, they they do, but it's generally in more kind of highly competitive commercial settings like Bordeaux, Napa, Sonoma, okay. uh, Burgundy, all of that. But you know, mostly people are cordial, but in the big business you always have grudges. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wasn't sure. So I went ahead and asked him. He said that's fine. Uh, he actually hasn't tried it. So uh, I guess this will my review will be maybe tempt him to re, to try it or or not. <laughs> uh, color wise, it's it's a it's like a maroon, a very dark maroon, kind of closer to purple. I would say uh, smell black fruit, uh, but also some sort of note that I can't identify. But it seems sour. Like there's like a, a sour smell. Almost like a like lemon heads almost. Um, taste wise, it's 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 a fruit bomb. It is so fruity. And the first glass I had, the fruit just kind of overpowered everything. But 
after I let it sit and it was open for an hour or so, there's other stuff going on. It's 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 fairly acidic. It's not super acidic, but it's not bad. Um, it's quite hot. It's uh, got some light tannins and it has light mouthfeel. It does stick with you for a while, but it's the fruit the fruit that really sticks with you. Uh, I think that probably a couple of years ago, this would have been very, very good to me. Mm-hmm. But at this point, the big fruit bombs are just not my favorite when it comes to Tempranillo anymore. And I know that I know that Texas produces very good Tempranillo. And I would say that this isn't bad. It's not like bottom shelf crappy stuff, but it's just not great either. It it I don't like giving a bad review to things, as as everybody who listens to this show knows. But I think they could probably do better than this. Uh, and it's High Plains grapes. I know the High Plains does good grapes. They also do bad grapes, but they can do very good grapes. I think this could be a lot better. And I don't think it's the best representation of Texas Tempranillo. Um, this, I would expect to see at Kroger for maybe 20 bucks a bottle. And mm-hmm. and it would be a good buy at $20 a bottle. 25 or $30 if I paid around that. Eh, maybe a little bit too expensive, but not not disappointing. Now, I have had uh, their GSM, and I'm never going to be able to pronounce this correctly, but uh, maybe, Jackson, you can help me with this. It's uh, Montepulciano. Montepulciano. Yeah, okay, there we go. That's okay. that. So they produce that, and they also have a GSM. Both of those I thought were pretty good, much better than this one. Uh, I would get the Italian-sounding one again, mm-hmm. uh, except for it's about $35 a bottle, which, again, is a little expensive. You can get mm-hmm. really good Montepulciano di Abruzzo from Italy for like fifteen, yeah. sixteen a bottle. Yeah, and that's that's kind of I mean now granted this is this is an emerging wine region, so sometimes the the costs are just higher and they can sell it for that amount when people come and visit yeah. them. Uh it's not really available around Dallas, unfortunately. Uh I'd like to see how they grow over the years. Uh I think it was last year or the year before they split up. So there's their trilogy used to be three vineyards that would make stuff together, and they split up. Trilogy was producing awesome Malbec, awesome Merlot, uh, pretty good Malbec Merlot blends uh, that are award-winning. And uh, actually, I think I've reviewed all three of those on the show, and they were all great. And Boland Vineyards, who Rowdy Rowdy runs, they're making very good stuff. They they made a dry Muscat that I thought was very good. Uh, And he's also producing Malbec and Merlot again, and his Malbec and Merlot are great. Uh, And what's he be on that? Say that again. What's the ABV on that? On this one, it's uh, fourteen point six. Hmm. So, well, you know, not super high, but pretty high. Huh. Yeah, it could be higher. Yeah, it could be higher. Uh, I think that I think I don't know who their winemaker is or anything. I think that this could be better, but I I think it's not terrible. And if you're in the Lubbock area, because this is not really available elsewhere, so as far as I could tell, uh, I would pick up a bottle and try it if you like Tempered Neo. Especially if you like very, very fruit-forward Tempranillos. It is very, very, very fruity. If you like blackberry, plum, like a lot of those like dark fruit flavors, this is – it also even even has some of the like darker red cherry notes. Uh, it is very, 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 very fruity. <laughs> but uh, that's – I guess that's my review on this. It's it's interesting. It's not terrible, but it's not I, – I, like I said, I, I, I would like – I'd like to see what they do in the future. Right now, this seems like not not the greatest, but it's also not bad. Not bad. I mean, it, it sounds like one of those ones where, you know, what year was it again? This it's 2017. This is the first year. Yeah, first year it's so been available. And maybe that it's just too young at this point. Um, 
like you know in the bottle sort of thing just kind of let it, it sit yeah. for a while i mean it, it could be it doesn't it doesn't seem to me like th- this is not a great way to judge it by base but based on the way that the bottle quality feels the way that the label is on it the cork was kind of short and uh very spongy it to me doesn't seem like it was made to age mm-hmm. uh, it yeah. it seems like it was made to drink and as far and, as and that goes Go go for, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, and if you're making a more fruit forward sort of more sugar heavy wine, those tend to not age as well. There's obviously tons of exceptions to the rule, like sure. there is for everything. But generally speaking, when people want to make an age worthy wine, acidity and tannins and earthiness are emphasized over fruit because the fruit quickly diminishes with age. Yeah, yeah. This definitely it seems like a drinking wine. It also I could totally see this appealing to. Uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, like sorority girls or something like that. You know, it's very, very fruity. It's not sweet at all, but it, if if it's kind of like you're going from like sweet whites into reds, uh, I think that this would be appealing. It's it's more dark fruit flavors than like the apple and pear and all that sort of stuff that you get out of this the reds. Um, it doesn't really have any of the honey flavor or any of the the sweet flavors that come out of sweet whites. But as far as reds go, very, very fruity. I could see this. This has definitely got mass appeal for people who are just not wine people. I think that, you know, since probably Jackson last time we spoke, like I've become a little I, I, jaded is not the right word, but like my palate has changed. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. And, and over time it does. Like there's certain things that I can pick up in wine now that I appreciate more. And uh, the things that I appreciate more are things like black pepper and leather and slate and like flavors that are a little bit more unusual i guess um like in a white wine i don't really want a a pear flavored appley white wine those are nice but i i would prefer like which to non-wine drinkers it sounds weird but like i like the flavor of gravel in it yeah, like yeah. like that's and and that's why i like um chocolina i think is what it's called from spain uh that one yeah, i think is very good very slaty it's got a little bit of like saltiness to it it also has like apple and and those other things too, but it's got it's very interesting. It's complex, so I think that's maybe what what this is lacking. It doesn't have the complexity. It's not it's not as well balanced as I would like. And that, and kind of to tie back to the point I made about Oregon is that's sort of the difference in philosophy between sort of longer, cooler climate regions and often hotter regions is that in sort of these cooler regions further up north is you get a much longer growing season. So the fruit has more hang time to develop those sort of complex flavors. Mm-hmm. And when you have a lot of sun very quickly, the fruit's tendency, and this is a bit extreme, is to sort of raisin, if you will. Right, right? It right. wants to concentrate that sugar. Um, and so that, that tends to create quite different wines according to preference. So like a lot of California wines, they ripen quite quickly and nicely because of the sun, the warm weather, the consistency. And a lot of people love that. Yeah. Uh, people also tend to like, but if you're looking for more of kind of the earth and more of the tertiary characteristics on the nose is how I would describe it, then often you'll have to look to perhaps cooler regions or coastal regions or yeah, diff- different methods. Yeah. And, you know, th- this is, you know, just sort of to accentuate the oddness of, uh, of Texas is the Lubbock area this past week had snow. And mm-hmm. which is kind of odd for October. And then like down here, it's like today it was almost 80 degrees. 
I think I think it warmed back up in the Lubbock area, but it, it's it's an it's an odd weather pattern in Texas. So from year to year, you're getting not get as much consistency. Things do tend to ripen quickly, but when you get up into the high plains, one of the cool things about the high plains areas they do have the diurnal, so it does cool off a lot at night, and uh, and so you do get that temperature swing. But they're you know harvesting in mid-August, uh, you know, some of them is as early as July they're harvesting, but their growing season tends to start in February. Now, the the downside with that is that in February, you can still have random frosts. You know, it, it's it's bizarre. It's it's kind of a weird, compared to the rest of the world, it's very strange. So they're still kind of learning a lot of that stuff, learning what grows well here. They want things that have later bud break now, uh, and and they're and they're getting that they're starting to plant that a lot more uh, Italian varietals, a lot more Spanish varietals, and and this Tempranillo is is a Spanish varietal. I don't know how that's grown, but it then it gets so hot here so quickly, and they're harvesting very early. But you know there was some people still harvesting in October here. It just depends on where you are. It depends on what the year is like and how much sugar is developing in your wine, and you know you're going to get different things depending on what you're growing. So it's an interesting area, and like compared to California, where it's very, very, just very moderate temperature, and then you get into like the Applegate Valley, where it's a little bit cooler. You you may have a shorter growing season, but you can you can let the fruit kind of hang into the fall, and and end up harvesting a little bit later, so you get a longer ripening time. So you are developing these characteristics that are a little bit different. Uh, on the one you're drinking, Jackson. Because mm-hmm. it's from Troon. I know that now they are biodynamic. Is the one that you have biodynamic? I believe this is when back when they were just certified organic because it has okay. a little live certified in the back. They switched over to biodynamic. And a yeah. lot of people are switching from organic to biodynamic. Well, I know that when we t- – when well, when I talked to Craig Camp, who's I guess their, their head winemaker or head administrator. I'm not sure exactly what his position is called, but uh, he's in charge and uh, – he was saying it was a very long process for them to become biodynamic certified. So they were able to get organic first, and mm-hmm. and I don't know when, what year, but he when the way that he we, you know everybody who wants to listen to it can go back and listen to the episode that I did with Craig Camp. I don't know the episode number, but I can look it up. And uh, he said like it's a long process, and they just recently became certified. So I'm I'm curious to see if they're still producing what you're drinking because another thing he talked about was. Because they're now biodynamic, they may get different things each year, and the head winemaker may just decide, you know what, we have this much of this and this much of this, we're going to do a different type of blend. Yeah, and this is kind of a weird blend too, like I mentioned before, but um, yeah, uh, you were asking about uh, in regards to this wine in particular or biodynamics, sorry? In general, like what, like, uh, you know, I know that they're switching a lot to the biodynamics and that sort of stuff, but... Uh, in general, from year to year, in Oregon, are they? Is there people that are just trying to be consistent and make the same thing year in and year out, or is the trend kind of going toward like, how was this year? Let's do a blend that's slightly different. Okay, yeah. Um, in Oregon, overwhelmingly is towards more vintage style wines. So people want vintage variation. They want to talk about the differences between year and year. So they're often making quite different wines year to year. Not dramatically different in that it would one year might be a California wine and one year it might be a Burgundian wine, but they're generally mm-hmm. sort of embracing the differences in uh, vintages, which is I think made for a more interesting winemaking culture. 
rather yeah. than trying to consistently produce the same thing year over year. Yeah, I, I think it's like there's a different challenge in that. Is that like yeah. on, the, on the one hand, like it's it's a challenge to become consistent, but on the other hand, it's a challenge to you know make good what you've got, which is a lot more traditional, a lot more old school. I guess. Yeah. And it's also worth remembering kind of where wine emerged out of and the climate it emerged out of, which is why consistency was so emphasized in the beginning as well. Yeah. Is that the wine we drink today was developed in Little Ice Age Europe and basically the 17th century and 16th century. It's a much longer history, but Mm. essentially the, the bottles, the oak, all, you know, the trade routes, that was all basically created during that time period. Mm-hmm. So people were very much interested in trying to get a consistent product year to year because if you think about it, this was a time when you would regularly have snow all the time in London, which is, you know, a rare occurrence today. Right. Uh, so we, it was a much cooler climate, even in Burgundy and Champagne, which are cool regions to this day. So at first, when people, you know, went to these warm areas and they got consistent ripeness year after year, they were like, this is fantastic. This is paradise. Why don't we celebrate this? Mm-hmm. But then it, like all things, it got to the point to, to which you're, you know, you're making these overly extracted oak and fruit bombs that already taste like a hangover. So, you know, there's a dialogue, if you will. That make, Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I know that one of the things that the trends that like I read about and obviously like Mason and I are still pretty new to this, that this wine, the wine world in general, but that, you know, in the nineties, early two thousands and even up till today to some degree is that the trend in places like California was to show the extravagancy basically of the wine. So like you, Oak is not cheap. So, but so people putting these, you know, Chardonnays on Oak and more and more and more and more and more. And you're getting just like, like you were saying, oak bombs, where it's just like, holy crap, this has like been oaked to death. And they realize that, well, you know what? You know, Chardonnay can actually be different. It doesn't have to be oaked. And we can kind of accentuate what's going on with just the Chardonnay grape because the terroir here is very good. So you now start seeing a lot more unoaked or, or may, maybe not unoaked, but less oaked or presented. Neutral oak, yeah, love. yeah, yeah, That's neutral oak, right. Yes, think, things are a little bit different now, and and it's interesting to kind of read back what was going on in the '90s when this was all starting to like really blow up, which I yeah. guess the '80s and '90s was really blown up, and what's going on today is it seems like people are it's a little bit more of like a like an artisan product product now instead of just trying to make it big product. Yeah, and I also kind of think it goes along with general taste patterns as well, especially if you look at the American public. You know, for the longest time, people wanted more and more sugar, more and more sweetness, mm-hmm. and all of those there. And if you kind of if you grow up on Coca Cola and um, ice cream, whatever, and all of that, of course, you're when you first start drinking and you have wine, you're going to want the thing that tastes more like that. So, mm-hmm. I think that's a big factor as well. That's, just, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I like I still I still really enjoy Diet Dr Pepper. That's one my I think Mason. That's probably one of your favorite drinks too. Yeah, I drink Dr. Pepper too. But. Yeah, and it, it's very sweet, and that's interesting because it does sort of translate to the sweetness is not really what my palate originally was drawn to, but it was a fruitiness that was what I was originally drawn to, and but it's interesting to kind of contrast to that. You know, I'm married to an Eastern European, it is to contrast that with their flavor palate, which is very sweet, sugary sweet. So they add a lot of sugar to their wines. Yeah, and the stereotype for that was the old 
champagne marketed to the Russians, which yeah. was basically sauterne sweet, and then they'd add another mm-hmm. spoonful of sugar to that still. Yeah, and even their like indigenous wines, like Cahor, and you know the the ungodly number of Georgian grapes that I can't pronounce. <laughs> like all of, a lot of those are sweet. Like when we go to the Russian store and we look on the shelf, and I'm struggling to find a dry, they're sweet, 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 semi sweet, 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 semi sweet, <laughs> and like, and then finally you find that one dry. <laughs> and I, I have actually have a theory on this. Why it's still kind of common is that sugar was never fully democratized quote unquote mm-hmm. uh, capitalism in those countries that it was in the United States and Europe early on. So people, when they could get something sweet, they, they went for it, you know? They, well, you know, that makes a lot of sense too. And, and, and it makes sense like in their chocolate markets as well. Cause yeah. uh, like their, the former president of Ukraine was a, which sounds weird for us, but he was a chocolate tycoon. So yeah. uh, he made, he made ungodly amounts of money in Ukraine on, basically having a chocolate cartel and that sounds very 19th century early 20th century america but that's still a thing over there is that they have these it's like cartelized specialized products and well pretty yeah, much cartelize everything but <laughs> and i'm sure you know more about this than me but after the the collapse of the soviet union sort of people closely connected to the union heads or factory bosses oh for were sure able to very quickly kind of swoop in yeah and buy to buy up the fake shares issued and basically establish hegemony. Oh, yeah. Over these industries. Well, you can you can actually, this is sort of getting off the topic of wine a little bit, but you can see that in the representation of uh, how the different former Soviet countries broke up is that some of them established a process where you could claim property. And some, mm-hmm. of, some of them just basically divvied out property based on who was in the party. And the ones that did very well, or well, that did relatively very well, Poland and uh, Hungary and a couple of others, they did it where they had a, they were like, you have five years to claim your property. If you don't claim it, then it goes to public auction. Yeah. And and the countries like Belarus and Ukraine and, and Lith, uh, Lithuania and places like that, they did it a little bit differently. They were just like, well, this guy's in charge of the factory, so he gets the factory. And that yeah. was more like, well, the guy in charge of factories clearly a communist party leader. So, you know, so what's like, that's a weird way to split it up. And you also had different kind of, this is a tangent, but you had different distributions of property within former Soviet systems mm-hmm. as well. Like while they were all pretty much horrible, mm-hmm. East Germany wasn't the same as being in say Kyrgyzstan, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas, you know, you, you, you can you can go to former East Germany, it's depressing and there's a lot of bad buildings and stuff, but essentially it feels like a, for, a first world country. Right. Yeah. So I, Mason says he's having a little bit of connections issues. So yeah. I've got some questions for you, Jackson, that we can go into if, yeah. if you're if you're interested. What yeah, is all right, so let's go ahead and if you can give us the state of the union of your general area, what is what's going on right now in the area that you think is interesting? Uh, do you have any predictions for the next couple of years for vintages we should be looking for or any particular styles that you're really excited about that are coming out of the general Oregon and Washington area? Sure. I think overall for the Pacific Northwest, and I've been kind of isolated here doing the wine stuff. Um, here just because it's a little bit of a insular place, if you will. 
Um, it's, it's a really exciting place right now for the wine industry. There's a ton of development, ton of new vineyards, and people are really trying out new things. So not only in Oregon is Pinot Noir and Chardonnay taking off, and Chardonnay is really starting to take off even, I think it's starting to take off even more than Pinot Noir in some ways now, which it was previously 85% of plantings in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Chardonnay is going to get bigger from Oregon, and then you're also starting to see Sauvignon Blanc emerge, Chenin Blanc emerge, fantastic Riesling emerge. You're going to start to see more Alsatian blends and more German-style blends too, which will be really exciting. And a uh, few people have brought out sparkling equipment, so we're going to see more kind of champagne-style sparkling wines. So a few people are starting to do um, – one guy, and I'm blanking out on the name – um, is basically making sparkling wine for uh, winemakers and uh, grape growers, basically on a consulting style thing. But he's doing basically champagne wine methods and is having fantastic results in the Willamette Valley. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's exciting. Eastern Washington, completely different story altogether. They're growing much more kind of Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, Malbec, those hotter grapes because it's a much warmer growing season over there. This um, is what, they, did you say eastern or western? Eastern Washington. Oh, okay. So like out, like out uh, by yeah, like past, Snake, Snake River Asia Valley, that kind of area. Yeah, yeah, kind of out um, around Walla Walla is sort of the center. Uh, that's one of the kind of the most famous region there. But yeah, past the Cascade Rain Shower. Once you get into the desert. Okay, that makes sense. All right. And they're irrigating there. Um, they pretty much have to irrigate, so it's a very different thing altogether. That's actually very similar in some ways. Um, to nor- to northern Texas, if you will, it's just yeah. in some res- because it's a dry area, you have to irrigate. You have the frost issue, but generally, the frost is actually might be actually less of an issue there than Texas, which is weird. But it, but it also but in the summer there, it's pretty hot. It's over a hundred, right? Uh no, it's well, it's I was there the summer. It's like generally about somewhere between eighty five, ninety two. Oh man, that's so that's very pleasant. But it, but then it goes down to 60 at night or 55 even. Oh, okay. All right. So it gets really cold at night. So you get really good diurnal shifts. So the fruit preserves quite nicely. That's why I'm trying to convince my parents because they're trying to look for retirement property right now. I'm trying to get them to go to eastern Washington or western Idaho. Because Eastern Washington's really nice. Um, benefit there over Idaho is no income tax. That's true. Yeah, uh-huh. that's that's true. Um, and it's just... It's just a kind of a pleasant place, I'd say. It's um, it's it, relatively conservative and not super. You know, it's not a flaggy conservative kind of place. Yeah, and people really live and let live there. Well, that's you know, good. As far people actually do within the U.S. That's what that's kind of what like I always got like my impression of you know Northern California, particularly not along the coast and Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington is. If the Libertarian Party really wanted to succeed, that's the types of places where they would do yeah. well. Is is they're just they're pretty much independent people. They kind of are like, yeah, you know, you do whatever you want to do. We don't really care. And because the distances are so vast in places like that, and people don't really live right on top of each other, they're already kind of living independently, just out of necessity. Yeah, yeah and if you look at, I I love kind of reading about. This early history of the western u.s is mm-hmm. this whole region was actually a lot freer in certain ways even the cities as well they were sort of these free trading ports yeah especially san francisco which was you know you had these kind of wild differences but it was also connected to this sort of broader western 
kind of place that was actually a lot free. And I, I agree with you on that. I think I don't think New Hampshire was a good choice at all for the free state project. That's just Boomer, Massachusetts. In yeah. some ways. <laughs> that's that's actually I, I had a very similar conversation online about that where I was like, why didn't you guys pick like Wyoming or Idaho? Yeah. It, and like now Even I get Alaska would make a lot more sense because it's it's got less people. You actually have an option for like independence and all of that. That would make a lot more sense. Yeah, it would. And I think I think that the reason they ch- end up choosing well, I mean I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why they chose New Hampshire, but I think it's because it's close enough to Boston and other places where they thought that they could attract people to come. And Yeah. And, and the primary thing too, I think. Yeah, yeah. Probably- right, exactly. Yeah, that as well. But like in places like the amount of people who move to New Hampshire, if they could just move to Wyoming, they would basically yeah. control 25% of the state. <laughs> I was going to say I thought there was some Oh, I think I think Mason still. Yep, we got I think, him. Yeah, we had him for a minute, but I think he had some connection issues again. Well, I was. I, I just didn't hear you guys like it stopped, but I, I think New Hampshire also has some unique things about their legislature that they're hoping in the Free State Project. Oh, that's probably it. I'm I'm probably not smart enough to know about that. Um, that, that that actually probably has something to do with it too. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. To me, it always sort of made sense to you know pick pick somewhere a bit different because it, it New Hampshire is really just in the midst of this huge New England block and it's pretty much relying off of that. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm trying to think. I have another question that I don't know if you know anything about. This is just something I I was I've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh. And that is totally, totally separate from Oregon, totally separate from Washington. Your first love, Spain. Mm-hmm. So Rioja, I have been reading that apparently 2019 has been a incredible year for Rioja, and that this is going to be like one of the best vintages they've had for a long time. But uh, Grand Reserva will not be available until I think 2024. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, I've been reading a little about that, and they've got fantastic results out of Rioja this year, which has been somewhat surprising given the weather in Europe this summer. Season yeah, and it was absolutely fucking nuts. Yeah, that's oh. what, that's what I was reading too. And so, like when I when I saw these articles come out that it was that this was like one of their best vintages, or that a lot of the producers are saying oh, this is a great vintage and stuff. I was like, yeah. this is crazy. I thought that you guys had a terrible year, and I guess that particular area did not have a bad year. Yeah. And the thing too is people people have this image of Rioja in their head as a wine region, which is completely inaccurate. They think it's this sort of hot, windswept Andalusian plain mm-hmm. that you know Don Quixote rides out of. No, that's not it. It's it's clo- it's much closer to the coast, and it's in northern Spain than people than people imagine. The actual town that's the center of the wine region has average summer highs of eighty two degrees, so it's not super hot. Yeah, you get a lot of stuff from that Bay of Biscay coming right down there. And this is what, like, so what we're thinking of when people usually are thinking of that part of Spain, they're really more thinking of like uh, Toro or like. Yeah. Uh, 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 Rivera del Duero would be the perfect example okay. of that, that sort of windswept plains image. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So the, now my question kind of was I know that you can get futures in Bordeaux. Yeah. Can you do the same thing at Rioja? Because if if this is such a great vintage, I would love to like purchase either a share in a barrel or or a barrel depending on the cost or whatever, and just wait the five years to either get a couple of bottles myself, but also to 
see what this what this uh, what the price is going to be in those years and try to profit a little bit off of that. Do you know anything about how futures work? I don't know if uh, Rio has a futures market set up. There might be a few people selling them on the London Bordeaux Exchange, but I, I can't guarantee you anything on that. Okay. What I would say is if you want to make sort of an investment in this vintage of Rioja, what I would do is I would figure out who's shipping, uh, who, those, who the top uh, winemakers are that you like at a reasonable price mm-hmm. and try to place orders with them or the importers they're working with or a store they're working with and try to just get ahead and purchase the wine outright. I, I'm pretty skeptical of like, I, I'm sure you can make money and all of that, but it just, the way the wine features are, you know, I, I, I'd much rather just have the bottle and be able to sell it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes sense. Cause I wasn't sure exactly how the futures work. Cause I go, I watched a couple of videos and they were like, well, you can get these gigantic Nebuchadnezzar bottles or whatever. And yeah, and I was part like, well, where would I, where would I even put that? Yeah, and part of the appeal with the futures is that um, they're marketed main, they're mainly done in European Europe and Hong Kong, a lot of it in London too, where there's a twenty percent VAT attached to things. Okay. So when you purchase a wine on, on its own, you have to pay that twenty percent VAT in most places. Okay. Whereas if you purchase it on the futures market, you can uh, sort of avoid paying that VAT because it's no longer a consumer product; it's a future. So that's oh, interesting. In, in the U.S., it's not as important a thing. Okay, that's that's very interesting. So I, the other question I had about that is, you've got like three levels of of uh, Rioja. You've got like whatever the like the first year is, and then there's a, I can't remember what each name is, but then the like the the last name is Grand Reserva, right? Which is I guess yeah. five five years. Is that is that correct? Yeah, uh, five years. I believe it's um, three in barrel, two in bottle. Okay, so three in barrel, two in bottle. So if you got one of the lower levels and just waited until the five years, is that not as good because it's not been in barrel as long? Yeah, and there's different selections for it. So like different vintages, they might declare, you know, a Grand Reserva, Reserva. So okay, that's part of it too. So they don't declare, they might not, uh, certain houses won't declare a Grand Reserva every year. They also will likely, you know, they might have, select parts of the vineyard that they're picking or select grapes they're using but the big thing is when you're buying a grand reserva you're buying a wine to be aged a long time and that longer treatment in oak theoretically it does a lot of the time it's neutral oak too this is something people get wrong about european winemaking Mm -hmm. um that longer period of time in oak allows more oxygen to get through and allows sort of less of the fruit forward characteristics to come through than sort of these i don't know more leathered more long-term okay. characteristics that a grand reserve that's been aged a while has been famous that it is famous for okay that makes sense so i guess basically what what i'm reading from this conversation is i need to put like a reminder in my calendar that in 2024 to just go buy a couple of cases of my favorite riojas and yeah. put those aside and just kind of over time because i think by the time by 2025 i should probably own a house i'll probably have you know at least a wine fridge, if not like some sort of built-in cellar or something like that. And I'll be able to keep these for a, an extended period of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Rioja, good Rioja is still kind of cheap, I have to admit, especially compared to like California and even some of the Texas stuff you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. You go buy like a Lopez Herida at the grocery store if they have it for like 45 bucks, and that's like a world-class wine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There I it is. Uh, I'm going to look through my, my magazine real quick because they have an advertisement for it because I remember seeing it and going like, holy crap, I can't believe that they're advertising this because I thought it was shit wine. I just really like it. And it was uh, – 
Hold on, I'll find it. Cunet's oh. really good. That's like sixty in a bottle. Um, I was gonna say. In the meantime, I've always wondered, as in literally the last three days, what's the different? What it? What makes it neutral oak? So neutral oak has been uh, used before. Um, so it's um, or it, it's wine. It's wine has been through those barrels. So sort of the tannins and the flavor structures of oak have already been taken up by wines. So it, it might impart a little bit, but it's not imparting the flavor of oak. It's instead used to oxidate the wine and create a different texture. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, here it is. It's, it's, uh, this is like one that you can get at Kroger actually. And it's, it's good. Their Reserva is very good. It's uh Marquis de Rascal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're good, and you it's, can get them yeah. for a lot. That's it's like, like fourteen. Bucks. Yeah, it's like fifteen bucks, fourteen dollars, or something like that. And yeah. it's it's great. It's not as good as the one you recommended me. One that is not really available at the grocery store, but it's at Total Wine, and I got their Grand Reserva, which is a little bit more expensive. It's about forty five dollars uh, for mm-hmm. the. I think that I think it's the two thousand nine is the one that's about forty five dollars, and but Local. still very good. Yeah, yeah, you, and there's some other ones too that are. Um, mm-hmm. that are kind of a more modern method, but you can, there's no reason you need to, like, you can buy a really good Bordeaux for $20 easily. Oh, ab- yeah, absolutely. Free, uh, not Bordeaux, sorry, Rioja. Well, but Bordeaux, even, even uh, Bordeaux, you can get, you can get good yeah, Bordeaux, you can get too. A Bordeaux for $20, too. You can get yeah. a dock and, you know, that have that with lamb. It's, you, you could have that. You could also do the uh, lighter-bodied ones that are more and more low-heavy. You can get from, um, I don't remember, it used to be, uh, it used to be Cadillac, I think, but it's now it's Cote de uh, Bordeaux. Yeah, Cote de Bordeaux. Yeah, and it's it's like right next to Saint Emilion. It's like if you were like three steps across the border, you'd be in Saint Emilion. But it's Cote de Bordeaux now, and it's like seventeen dollars a bottle, but it is very good. Yeah, and it's just and you should be kind of careful with the producers because some of those sure. guys are using like Vietnam War era pesticides on those. Vineyards. Really? Oh, really? See, we, I yeah. I think actually I don't know, Mason. I think you might have had this one as well, but I had one that was seventeen, maybe twenty dollars or whatever. It was uh, Chateau de Artus, and or maybe it was just Chateau Artus. I don't remember exactly what it was, but very very inexpensive, very Merlot heavy. Uh, but and I probably a couple years ago wouldn't have liked it, but now that I kind of know the difference between the grapes and um, what is present in different types, uh, what different regions of Bordeaux, like I, I think maybe five or six years ago, I would have expected all Bordeaux. Actually, until I met you, probably I wouldn't have even known what to expect from Bordeaux, but I would have expected all red wines to be Cabernet Sauvignon mm-hmm. and everything else would be bad red wine. <laughs> <laughs> and, but now it's like, oh, this is different, and it's supposed to be different. And yeah. and I get that now with like Merlot, where I'm like, okay, this is smoother. It's got it's got different notes to it. It's not as it's not as punchy. It's not as tannic. It doesn't have all that. And so now the right and left bank make more sense to me. And when I get a Madoc, it makes more sense because a Madoc is going to go really well with punchier meats. Actually, like so you get you get a very beefy beef or a lamb or something like that. And Madoc is great with that. But on the other hand, you might have something a little more delicate that would go better with a Merlot. And even some of the beefs, like some of the beef dishes that I like, I think Merlot goes very well with them. Yeah, I think I think filet mignon, for example, is doesn't actually hold up well to a very heavy Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm-hmm. Sometimes well, you want sort of a leaner wine to go with it, some a little bit more acid. Yeah. You don't actually, like I find with like the, especially kind of 
not even the fruit bombs, but, you know, the very, very heavy, even very high end wines that are, you know, sort of Cabernet Sauvignons meant to sip and savor. A lot of those don't go fantastic with food at all, unless it's a very particular steak. Yeah. Because they're just, they just overwhelm. And it's kind of like, it's a little bit more like having a cocktail than a glass of wine at, at some point, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I think Mason, you're much more of a drinking wine food person than I am, but I tend to be, uh, I do tend to treat wine much more as a cocktail. And yeah. even though like now I've gone through some of the W set stuff and have, I understand the food pairing a little bit better. The, that to me is like, Oh, this is awesome that this pairs with this really well. And it tastes really cool when you do it. But I still tend to just drink wine by itself. Like while, like if I sit down and do some work on the computer for a glass of wine, if I, you know, I'm going to watch a TV show or a movie or something like that, I pour a glass of wine and, and here in Dallas, I don't know. I'm not sure if uh, Seattle's like this, but uh, not to dox you, but uh, most of the movie theaters around here are bar movie theaters, so you can get you can get a glass of wine. Yeah. And uh, here, I don't know. I don't. I don't have a desire to go to movie theaters much. Really? Um, yeah, I don't know why. Like, I can. You're like the sit, only I, person that goes to the theater. <laughs> I I like. I don't know. I like going. I, it's it's uh. It's, uh it's like got the 4K and everything. And so, like, why would I leave my sofa when I could eat better, drink better, and have weed here? Like, what's the point? That's just true. I guess. Yeah. I I don't know. I guess it's a break from the dogs. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, and then it's also your wife. Like, that's a big thing for your wife still. That's true. Like, where for like me, like. I have to, like, the kid isn't old enough to go see movies yet, and, like, the movies we want to see really, you know, wouldn't hold our attention. It's not like we're going to see The Lion King or something like that, where mm-hmm. it just might be too loud. But, like, so we have to give, you know, take her to my parents' house or, like, find a babysitter, and then it's like, okay, so now I'm going to sit for this movie that's, like, they've all trended up to, like, over two and a half hours yeah, like, that's true. They're yeah, yeah I'm movies just are long. Not gonna sit here for this long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought I, I I've gone and seen a couple of movies in the last in the last month. Uh, I like Joker a lot, and I I thought that Zombie Land Two was very good. Actually, I thought Zombie Land Two was almost as good as well. I think it was. I it could be argued that Zombie Land Two was better than Zombie Land One. So it was. I thought they were both very good. But you know what? In both cases, you can wait till they come out on TV. And these days, like you like you were saying, Jackson, like on your TV at home. It's going to be roughly with the prox like how close you are to the television. It's going to be the same size as the movie theater. It's just because you're closer instead of further away. So it's like it's like eh. I mean, it's basically the same thing. <laughs> yeah. In, in defense of movie theaters, when I do go and I kind of push myself out, do that. You, I think you do get something more out of the movie when you're just paying absolute attention to that one screen in front of you. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. But a lot of it is just get, you know pushing yourself out and getting you know finding the time to do that and all yeah you know okay well th- and that makes a lot of sense and that is kind of how I feel about it too but I just looked at the time and we are starting to run a little bit short so let's push forward because I I do want to get to this article at the end because I think it's funny uh, so let's go ahead real quick and just do our quick summary of I wanted to cover three grapes today because. One thing I don't think we've been we've been conveying to our audience very well is that in the regions in France, the you know we mentioned it with Bordeaux. There's these there's different grapes that that make a Bordeaux wine a Bordeaux, but there's other places in France and and Europe in general that it's the same way. And I wanted to kind of cover Northern Rhone because uh, 
I knew we were going to be talking to you, and for some reason, I associate you with Northern Rhone-style wines, and I, I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because you like it in particular, or if it's... it's personality. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... I Well, I associate with you, too, with two different ones. I associate with you with Northern Rhone-style wines and Spanish wines, hmm. and Portuguese wines, so I guess three. <laughs> <laughs> uh but I wanted to go over the three grapes. We went over a couple of weeks ago, Vignet and Mason. You're drinking a Vignet today, so I, I didn't want to. I didn't think we needed to rehash this. But Northern Rhone is is very famous for uh, four grape varietals. I wanted to cover three of them. The three that I want to cover is Marsan, Roussan, and Syrah. They are also famous for Vignet, but like I said, we covered Vignet before, so I don't really want to go over that again. I may be pronouncing these incorrect, but I'm going to say Marsan. Marsan, yeah. Marsan. So uh, it's a white grape. It's often blended with Roussan, uh, but can be done as a single varietal in Rhone. Uh, and in Rhone, it's uh, up to 15% is allowed to be blended with red to make Hermitage. And the so, other... Uh, what percent did you say? It says up to 15%. So Hermitage, yeah. apparently Hermitage, red Hermitage is allowed to be up to... Or you can you can make it up to 15% something besides what we're going to get to in a little while, Syrah. Mm. Um, yes. And, but most of the time, that's it's not done, or if it is, it's done more around, say, 2 3 4%. Okay. In co-fermented. Okay, that's interesting because, see, and I didn't realize this until I was doing a little bit of research for this. I really like Hermitage. And then I realized that Hermitage doesn't necessarily mean Rhone- Wine. It could also refer to Syrah or Shiraz from Australia, but we'll get to that in just a second. Um, so, or or South Africa. So, um, other names for this is in. Um, it's also known as. Uh, I'm going to try my best to pronounce this, but Grosset Rosette in Savoy. So th- mm. apparently that's what they call it there. Uh, it's called Hermitage Blanc in Switzerland. And it's called Marsana in Spain. So apparently they, they also plant that. It's also very uh, popular. Well, I wouldn't say very popular, but it's grown in the United States, Australia, um, South Africa, and other parts of Europe. Uh, typical characteristics of this white grape are uh, a good mouthfeel, but it says that it lacks a depth of perfume and flavor, and that is why it's typically blended. So apparently it is usually added to blends to give a heavier mouthfeel, a little bit more structure to other whites or to red wines. Uh, the next one is Roussan. It's also a white grape, often blended with the previous grape we talked about, Marasana or Marasan, um, but can also be blended into red wines. Like we said, it can be mixed with uh, Syrah, up to 15% to make Hermitage. Uh, in California, they were growing... Rosan for a lot of years up until 1998 they thought it was Vignet turned out it was it was not Vignet they did some DNA studies and they went oh shit we've got Rosan here we don't actually have Vignet uh, and that is interesting because it highlights how similar Rosan and Vignet are to each other uh, they are not the same grape they do offer different characteristics and what you're typically going to get out of Rosan is um, herbal tea-like aromas you're going to get pear and honey on the palate. It's going to be higher acidity, which you don't often get from Vignet, but sometimes you do. 
Um, and if it's picked early, that you're going to get a lot more of that. Uh, if it's picked later, you're going to get very high alcohol by volume. Um, blended, it provides a lot of the aromas and flavor uh, where Marsan is not providing that, but you're going to get the mouthfeel from Marsan. So when it's mixed for whites, it, it gives a little bit more aroma. And when it's mixed with reds, it still adds aroma and stuff and it adds a little bit of structure to that as well. The final one, my favorite of the three, and one of the reasons why I love uh, Rhone's, particularly Northern Rhone, and actually uh, Rhone Village, I like a lot too, but although Village has a lot more Grenache and stuff like that in it, but um, the Syrah, I think, is very good from this area. So it's a red grape. It's it's from the Rhone Valley, uh, so it's native. Uh, it's also called Shiraz in Australia, and the typical characteristics are when young, it's very fruity and very floral. But when it's aged, you're going to get a lot of that black pepper, the hibis, uh, herbiscus flavors, so like uh, bell pepper, um, kind of those kind of more vegetable-y flavors, which are a little bit unusual in reds, but like really neat in red. I really like them. I mean, you get these out of like Chilean, Ca- Chilean Cabernet Sauvignon as well. So if you get like a really good Chilean Cabernet Sauvignon, it's going to have a lot of this like white and black pepper flavor, a lot of this uh, herbaceous, I think is what they call it. I, I may be pronouncing that wrong. But it's like the bell pepper flavor. Um, you're also going to get some with uh, tanned leathers, a little bit of smokiness, and dark currant berries. So those are the grapes of Northern Rhone. I like to cover those in the show so that people kind of have an idea of what is going on that is not Cabernet Sauvignon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, and, and just to add to Syrah, yeah, uh, especially from the Northern Rhone, is you get often you get these really interesting characteristics on the nose. So you get this black olive that I find quite frequently. You get this smoked meat, this sort of horse saddle to it. Um, okay. Like like, like, the, a, like a smoked sausage or more like smoked like salmon or something like that? More like kind of steak on the grill after okay. you let it get enough at 30 minutes on a plate, you know, that okay. kind of smell. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. So like a little earthy too. Um, and then you, you also get, you know, um, I find you, uh, you get lavender as well. Northern Rhone Syrah. Oh, quite, interesting. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm pronouncing it wrong. It's like it's technically Syrah, and it's an it's really annoying. Yeah, Syrah. Annoying. Huh? Yeah, I, I had no idea. That's interesting. yeah. Well, most almost no one knows. It's just a hard. It doesn't sound right, you know. Okay. But um, yeah, Northern Rhone Syrah. You also get in like my favorite example of it is it has to be from Cote Roti where. Oftentimes, it's blended with Viognier. Yeah, well. I, that, you know, I was reading that too. Is that up until like the nineteen nineties, early two thousands, uh, Cote Roti was not known as the the great place for it. The great place for it was Hermitage, and the Hermitage still is a bit uh, pri- is still priced a bit higher than Cote yeah. Roti. But it's- well, you know, one thing that I thought was very interesting about Hermitage that I didn't realize this is I didn't realize until I started doing this research that Hermitage was a place. I thought it was just another yeah. name, another name for Roan. And when I was getting, legend, right? Say that again. You know the old legend? No. What's the what's the legend? So the the legend of Hermitage was, um, I think it was under Saint Louis, so Louis the Righteous, whatever the crusading French king, a knight who fought under him, came back sort of traumatized after the Crusades and wanted to become a holy hermit, uh, and the king allotted him that exact hill. And on top of that hill was built a chapel around the 12th century, 
and he became a hermit on top of that hill and started supposedly tending vines there. And that's sort of the legend of Hermitage is this knight escaping from the Crusades, planted a chapel on this very special spot that became the home of Syrah. That make that is that makes that's really interesting and a really awesome story. My weird story is that I've gotten Hermitage labeled from South Africa and Hermitage labeled from Australia thinking that it was just Roan's style and that that's what that meant is that is that Hermitage just means Roan style and I actually probably said it on the show so anybody who's been listening for a long time I was wrong on that apparently Hermitage is a place but Australia and South Africa do label wines done in this style Hermitage and it's it's not that and uh which is interesting because I'm very much opposed to, and Mason, you and I have both spoken about this quite a bit, these types of weird label stuff. But in my own experience, I've been, I wouldn't say fooled exactly, but uninformed in finding out what things are from where based on names, mm-hmm. I guess. And and the wine world is particularly like that, particularly Europe, because they have so many weird, like so many weird little areas. So you've got Rhone. And then Rhone, Northern Rhone is divided up into multiple areas, but then Southern Rhone is divided up into way more areas. And then you've got R- Rhone Village, which is, I think, different. Rhone Village is Southern Rhone, though. Oh, okay. Oh, so all of Southern Rhone is Village? Um, no, Rhone Village is attached to the Southern Rhone region, but there's some, I, there might be some on Northern Rhone Village, but there's, it's so it's so confusing on their own. Mm. Uh, it, there might be a transitionary zone too. <laughs> okay. Now and and then Beaujolais isn't Beaujolais in that area? Uh, Beaujolais is is um, it's north of Lyon, so it's it, kind of the southern. It, it, if you really want to go crazy, Beaujolais is technically part of Burgundy, and that's a whole oh, okay. other region. Then there's also six, you know a ton of different subregions in Beaujolais, like Morgon, Fleury, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Because I I've also had. Beaujolais Village that is very good, and I've also had Beaujolais that is not good at all. And yeah, varies a ton. Rome wines as well. There are just a ton depending on the producer. That's interesting. That's very that's very interesting. So this kind of to get into the naming and why the naming is important to a lot of people and less important to (laughs) Mason and me. I I I I wanted to. I wanted to kind of cover this this article real quick, and then we'll just kind of shoot the shit for a few minutes before we close the episode. But this article was really funny to me, and I wanted I just wanted to get it. Did you guys Did you guys both get a chance to read it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. For for this for the uh, listeners, I'll go ahead and summarize it real quick. So, uh, Italian police. The title of the article is Italian police seize uh, prosecco flavored Pringles. It's uh, by Mason's and my favorite guy at Decanter Magazine, Chris Mercer. And the summary of the article is a supermarket chain in Veneto region of Italy have had their Prosecco-flavored Pringles seized by the government. Uh, Anti-fraud unit looking for um, hundreds of packets of chips uh, over the alleged misuse of the term Prosecco. Uh, This is a protected name in the Italian and EU law. So according to the agricultural minister, we cannot allow identity theft. That's a quote. Uh, According to the agricultural minister, Pringles used the name Prosecco without permission from the Prosecco Appalachian authorities. Uh, The flavor is uh, called – I actually looked this up because I kind of wanted to try these and order them if I could. 
uh, but they're not available anymore on Amazon as far as I can find them or any other site. It's the flavor is Prosecco and pink peppercorn. Yeah, it's good the Italian government's protecting from dangerous people like you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I went and looked it up. I was like, I got to try this. This sounds too weird. <laughs> and uh, so the minister has uh, posted a picture. On, this is the thing, too, is like, why do they have no self-respect? The minister posted – now, it's probably his underlings or her underlings. Um, it's the minister posted a picture on their Facebook with like a big red no superimposed, <laughs> superimposed over it. And it says in capital letters, no. He has got dirt on his wife, man. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a crazy thing. So apparently they're really against this. Uh, so Pring- Pringles said that uh, this was a limited edition flavor produced before December 2018. And Pringles also said that they followed the EU guidelines and that Prose- that the use of the name Prosecco in this case is allowed under the law and that they believe that they followed everything, you know, to the letter, but they have no plans on producing this flavor again as it didn't do very well. So we can get them out of Lithuania for really? uh, like 12 bucks. I kind of want to try those. Although I also well actually Lithuania, I'm not I'm not too skeptical about Lithuania. You got a you got a ranking system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Jackson, his, his wife is from the Ukraine, and they shop at like these weird Russian stores. That's true. So, yeah, yeah, he's got a system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lithuania is not too bad. <laughs> I kind of want to try them. I, I might, I might, I might order these just to see what they're like. I, I'm, I'm very, very curious. Like, I'm, I'm not against like state power and all of this, but if everybody involved in this whole situation went to prison. I think the world would probably be a safer place. (laughs) (laughs) Some weird Italian grocery store guys is like, I'm going to prison. Well, apparently, apparently like, like I went, I went ahead and did some like other Googling just to see what else people were talking about this. They, they won't identify what the grocery store chain is, but apparently Mm -hmm. there are some people from the chain giving interviews were like, we just bought them on discount. And we were, just, we were just trying to sell them because they were cheap. Like, <laughs> that's all we were trying to do. Yeah, and that, that was definitely made for the British market. Who else would have pink peppercorn and Prosecco-flavored Pringles? Well, apparently, like, apparently the uh, the minister said they bought them from the Dutch. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's actually produced in. Yeah, that's the thing is, like, this is one of those ones where, like, who who knows who thought of it and – like, so, you know, like in Europe, they're always kind of like, oh, our food is so much better than the U.S. I didn't think Pringles were a thing because it's like that's literally just ground potato mash formed into chip shape and then cooked. Yeah. Like, and, and honestly, <laughs> honestly, like they're, the they're disgusting shit in Europe, too. It's just, yeah, the top stuff is better. Well, a long shot. we get we get from the Russian store we get uh, like their version of chips, which are like um, it's like baked rye bread with different flavors. Oh yeah, and if you want a truly disgusting trip, try a, a British uh, shrimp cocktail. Oh chip. my my wife is obsessed with those. They're oh, so they're gross. Horrible. Yeah, they're so disgusting. Yeah, they're not even like like I I bought them thinking they were kind of like that horseradish like American cocktail sauce flavored which I love mm-hmm. and they're like mayo flavored it's like disgusting yeah they're like, they're <laughs> they're <laughs> so weird and like they don't smell good they like they remind me now granted lots of people love these and I don't like them at all but when when my mom and dad would try to get me to like leave the room 
like if they were like we we want we want you to leave so we can have some like private time they would open up a bag of chicken and biscuit you ever, mm. you, ever you ever had those oh they they to me are nauseating yeah and oh, yeah. I, there, there's one of the oh. that's that's like a guilty pleasure for me. Like I really? eat an entire box and then I'm like, I'm going to go hang myself. Yeah. Like I feel awful. Those, those <laughs> yeah. to me, they smell so bad. It, oh my goodness. Yeah. And if, if you open up egg salad in like a confined space with me, I'll, I'll make you get out of it. Like I'll back. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. just, no, like, and it's not even, and I'm not even proud of this. Like I'll actually kind of want to throw up. Like it's not that. Bad I'm just imagining Jackson like backhanding people out of the room. Like, like get out of here. <laughs> egg salad. <laughs> no egg salad in the car. That's a very serious rule. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, well, what is it? What is it that our our form, well my, your current employer, my former employer, what was his rule about like fish? Was that you couldn't you couldn't no heat, microwave fish. No yeah. microwave fish. That's what it was. Yeah. I couldn't remember if it yeah. was you couldn't have fish or you couldn't have microwave fish. You couldn't have microwave fish because, like, everybody who microwaves fish, it's not like they're microwaving a piece of, like, fried flounder. It's, like, salmon that's already super cooked. Right. And then, like, some weird, nasty, like, flavoring that they've done on it. So it's just, like, the entire office reeks. It was, like, popcorn for a long time. You yeah. couldn't do either. Okay. Boarding school, someone microwaved something else, and that, that, that thing traumatized me for Mom's <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is it for my notes. I did I say that we wanted to get into something else? Because I I thought I did. No, I don't think no. so. Okay. All right. Well, that is it for my notes, Mason. Do you have any? I know you were kind of out with connectivity issues. Do you want to ask Jackson anything before we close uh, out the so episode? Last we talked, Jackson was all over the place in the Pacific Northwest, like prospecting Still. for wine regions. Uh, so. Yeah. Still kind of am, and I've got a I've got a few wild theories on that too. But yeah, still doing that same thing. Kind of been around here, doing some more of the finance work on the side to you know save up some money a bit, which is not a bad idea at the current yeah. moment. Sure, no, <laughs> I agree. And then how's the uh, import? Uh, that indefinite hiatus. Mm-hmm. Oh man. <laughs> We'll, well see. Yeah, we'll see. Things we'll see what happens. With the tariffs, things aren't looking too great for that field for a while. Well, you know, uh-huh. you know, and this is the thing too is that in in the wine market in general is things come and they come and they go. Yeah, and, you got to be able to pivot. Yeah, exactly. You got to be able to pivot. You've also you got to take into account too that you know the U.S. market it changes and it dries up it and it expands and so you do got to pivot. You know, Victoria and I are working on a couple of different ideas at the moment. And my ultimate goal in life is to somehow be involved in the wine industry. That's that's just what I want to do. I like it. I like I like pretty much just learning about it. I like everything about it. I don't know what I want to do, but one of these days I'm going to have that nest egg, and I'm going to be able to put it forward, and we're going to get into this. And yeah. either either with a vine, either with like a winery or a vineyard, or what I was going about to say was vinery, which I think that's a, <laughs> that's a good that's a good uh, combination of those two words, but. I, uh, I love Texas. I think it's a great place. If I can convince Victoria to get down to Davis Mountains, that might be a place for us. But I also love the Pacific Northwest, and and that's one of the places I would love to get around to as well. So, uh, all right. There's just so many areas of the, it's just a massive country. There's so many potential wine regions. Yeah, and I really think to kind of go to the anarchy portion of ten, ASK and anarchy to um, at the end is sort of. 
I do think and I am worried that there is going to be a lot more trade wars happening soon. I think yeah. that if you look at the Democratic primaries, look at the Republicans are talking, neither of them are talking in a very favorable way to trade. That's true. And, and that's actually – I didn't bring this article up because it wasn't really relevant to uh, the, the topics we were talking about. Well, it kind of was, but like France and Britain have been kind of hammered by these 20% trade tariffs and Italy – surprisingly spared from the tariff. So it doesn't really seem like it seems weird. Like what's going on yeah. that, that like especially Italy is not getting them. Market. Say that again, especially with the common market. I, I have, there's a few ways you could look at it for one. I think the Ital- if you look at the current power structure in the Italian government, it's actually a lot more friendly to Trump than the other Western European power structures and that the populace have more power in Italy. Okay. So I think that's part of it. Um, and worth looking at because you have the, you know, you have the People's Party, the North Northern League, all of that in control yeah. right now. Okay, well, um, you know, what? maybe we'll have you back on to talk a little bit more about that because I think we're running out of time for yeah. the show. But uh, Jackson, why don't you stay on for just a couple of minutes, uh, and we'll go ahead and do plugs, and then and then we can kind of like we can talk off air because I wanted to, I want to talk to you about a couple of things. I think Mason does too. Sure. All right, uh, Mason, you want to go ahead and do plugs real quick? Yeah, so you can always follow us on Twitter, Tasting Anarchy on Twitter, Childerberg, where we are uh, also on Twitter. Childerberg is the annual event in Texas, 23rd through the 26th of May in 2020, which is happening concurrent for part with the Libertarian National Convention in Austin, Texas, at some municipal park whose name I remembered 10 minutes ago, but don't remember now. (laughs) It's, It's Emma Long Metropolitan Park. Yeah, the Emma Long Metropolitan Park. Um, yeah, so then if you also, we're now on Facebook. You can go to tastinganarchy.com, and I believe you can follow Jackson Blood on Twitter still with at Jackson Blood. Yeah, Jackson Blood 1. Jackson Blood 1. All right, cool. Uh, I think that's it. You, let's go ahead and say stay free, everybody. Stay free. Stay free. Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Cherry, cherry. Blackberry. Horton sherry. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsby at Willis Den. He wasn't selling but American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel. Have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Somebody's fifth and somebody's fourth. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine.